transmission. Welcome to a new episode of EU Watchdog Radio. My name is Hans van Scharen, Media Officer at Corporate Europe Observatory, also known as CEO. In the first weekend of February, the website of CEO and the German TV program ZDF Magazine Royale almost crashed. Reason? The publication of the Frontex files. Three researchers published the analysis of the relationship between the European Border and Coast Guard Agency, aka Frontex, and a multitude of corporate interests, mostly companies from the defense, arms and surveillance technology sectors. The publication was called Lobbying Fortress Europe, the making of a border industrial complex. Based on over 130 documents covering meetings from 2017 to 2019, the research found an agency that is in constant contact with arms, surveillance and biometrics industry representatives. This, while Frontex told the European Parliament a few years ago, it never met with lobbyists. The new research found that these companies are pushing a narrative where migrants are a security threat, for which the solution is to spend more public money acquiring their equipment, from guns, drones, surveillance equipment to facial recognition tools. Many of these techno-fixes could have serious human rights consequences, not only for refugees, but also for European citizens. That is certainly the case with biometrics technology, including facial recognition surveillance. Yet, human rights organizations or experts on fundamental rights are kept out of Frontex's discussions. The three researchers, Miriam Duo, Luisa Izuskiza and Margarita Silva, also found that the massive expansion of the budget and powers of Frontex in just a few years' time has unfortunately not been matched by an increase in transparency, accountability nor scrutiny. I'll now be talking to Luisa and Miriam, two of the researchers of the Frontex files. Welcome, Luisa and Miriam. Um, you've just published um, an amazing uh, report on Frontex, Frontex files, which got quite a, a large echo. We'll, we'll be talking about that a bit later. But first of all, uh, Luisa, could you explain how and why you started with this research? It's three researchers of you uh, that did this together, but, but can you explain why and how it all started? Yeah, um, so it all started um, a year ago, actually, going through one of Frontex's annual reports, because um, I was working on research related to Frontex, but on another subject, and I came across this um, description of their last, of the 2018 discharge, discharge procedure, and um, one of the questions that they have been asked was um, to describe their, their approach to lobbying. Um, and I saw their answer, which was that Frontex did not meet with unregistered lobbyists. And I found that curious. <laughs> I just thought, well, that is um, a bold claim to make. And um, I started looking at 
over, you know, Frontex publishes their invitations to industry um, on their website. And I like scrolled through all of the invitations and I thought it would be good just to request um, lists of participants and relevant documents about these meetings because, um, yeah, none of this information was public. So I started filing freedom of information requests for documents about these meetings with industry in January 2020. Um, and one year later, we ended up with these more than 130 documents and this research. Right. You said discharge procedure. That is basically the procedure that goes on every year where the European Parliament needs to give approval of the spending by mm -hmm. European institutions and agencies. And um, yeah, basically, in normally in political life, uh, it is not nice or even a political sin if, if you give false information to, to Parliament, right? And mm -hmm. um, well, before we go into the content, um, that is, it seems, a bit what has been going on, but we'll talk about it later. Can you, can, 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 can you first um, explain, for people who don't know Frontex, it sounds probably strange in your ears, but um, what is this kind of a creature, Frontex? Miriam or, or Louisa? Louisa, go ahead. <laughs> Very familiar with them. <laughs> um, so Frontex is the EU border police. Um, so it's an EU agency that um, is basically a body of border guards and coast guards. And their task is um, to carry out border control, mainly. Um, so up until now, they... Um, recruited border guards from different EU countries and they brought them to several countries, usually border countries of Europe. So they have big presence in Greece, in Spain, in Italy, in the Balkan countries, and they carry out border control. Um, aside from this, um, they also have a big role in deportations, for example. So they facilitate um, deportations happening throughout Europe. Um, and they have a big um, role as well when it comes to what they call research and innovation, which is the area that we've looked into um, for this investigation. So it's basically them um, helping develop and promote technologies and, as they call, solutions um, that basically reinforce border control um, in Europe. Right. And l last question. So Frontex has grown very rapidly over the past years. Can you can you give an indication on? There's a graph on on the on the website in the in the in the report. But can you can you name some figures about how has it grown? Very much. Um, it has grown a lot and quickly, especially since the so-called refugee crisis. Um, so basically, before 2015, their budget um, was never above 100 million euros. And you can see, I mean, there's two big moments in Frontex's history since, again, this so-called refugee crisis. One is in 2016 and one is in 2019, where their budget, their powers and their mandate got expanded in two different um, legislative reforms. And so from um, 2016 onwards, we see... Um, their budget basically doubling. So 2016, they have over um, 240 million euro budget um, and it just increases from there. And so 
in the last uh, European budget, so for 2021 to 2027, they will have, um, for the first time, their record budget, which is 5.6 billion euros. Um, so they become um, basically the EU's richest agency. Wow, sounds like a lot of parties will be going on in, in Warsaw because that's where they're, they're based. Um, now, into the report you published, the Lobbying Fortress Europe, the making of an industrial border complex. Um, you, you, you said at the start that you have been looking into a lot of internal documents. Why do you come to the conclusion of this is really about the making of an industrial border complex? Miriam, maybe you can kick it off. Um, yeah, I can I can go ahead and Lucy, you can jump in if you need to. Um, well, I think what was striking for us is that basically what happened, uh, and I'll say this in my own words, but Frontex was just given a huge pot of money and the power to do whatever it wants with it, meaning buy its own equipment to fulfill its mandate. And what Frontex decided to do with this money and this power of initiative is to meet with weapons industry and surveillance industry. And so that says a lot about what direction Frontex wants to take the the agency further and wants to do with its mandate instead of, say, meeting with, you know, other organisms to discuss how to conduct search and rescue at sea or meeting with human rights organizations or meeting with progressive governments who are conducting, you know, a humane migration policy. They've decided to take it into the completely opposite direction. And that's, to me, very scary to what's going to happen in the future. And that says a lot about what Frontex wants to do um, with those. So that's, yeah, one of the striking points of um, of the documents, I think. Louisa, you want to add? Um, yeah, I mean, I'd say also that, like, one of the things that strikes us the most is kind of like this tight relationship between Frontex and industry actors, um, where I think that what comes across from the documents is just that they were seen as partners. Um, and so... Like, that's also why it drove us to this comparison between, you know, like the military industrial complex and how this is becoming a border industrial complex, because you see them working together very um, closely to basically achieve, you know, stricter border control, which is something that obviously Frontex wants, because that is the nature and their mandate. But also it's in the industry's interest, because that means more contracts, um, better business, um, and it's them working together um, this closely that, you know, it's quite striking from the documents. Right. And as, as you just said, Miriam, uh, there is a lot of money involved. So there is a lot of business possible. Um, now, I remember the quote from the start of this talk um, that uh, Frontex said to the parliament, we don't have any meetings with unregistered lobbyists. Now, I recall from reading your uh, report that... Um, from the documents, you do see a lot of meetings with unregistered lobbyists. Can you explain a bit how this, um, because Miriam, you just said like this is really on a sort of structured base, structural basis. Can you describe a bit about what did you find? How, how in concrete, how did that took took uh, form and that that kind of uh, those kind of meetings? 
Yeah, so basically the way the meetings happened is that Frontex would put out on its website a call and saying we will organize this meetings this meeting about biometrics, for instance. And there's an application form on the website that allegedly anybody can fill in and then participate to the meeting. Um, we don't know who applied to those, but it seems like only industry was um, at present at the meeting and the academics and people who have a stake in this um, in this topic and not many human rights organizations or, you know, um, anti-border activists or anybody like that. Um, and in that form, in that application form, uh, there's no question about are you registered lobbyist? Nowhere is it required to put in your transparency register number, anything like that. So anybody could... Uh, potentially apply and then make it to the meeting, and we've seen it in the in the in the documents, in the participants list, in the pr- presentations that companies were at that meeting who were not registered. And so, just tweaking that thing and adding a requirement for people applying to put their transparency register number that would not cost much money, not be a huge hustle for Frontex, and improve a lot and guarantee that only registered lobbyists would be at those meetings. So what, what kind of companies are we? Because you said from the defense sector, weapons sector, surveillance, technology sector, but what kind of are we talking about? Big companies, smaller companies? I, I read that it's basically not only European ones. Can you can you elaborate a bit on, on that? Um, yeah, so some of the top ones... Um Airbus is a huge is a huge one. Glock, the gun making company, they had lots of pictures of handguns in the presentations with logos and all the fun stuff. Um, so these these were the most. And then um, radars, facial recognition, uh, mobile ways to take fingerprints of people, uh, ways to hide radars and scans in the woods to make sure that you catch anybody who's trying to you know get to a better life via a forest. Um, all of those, I think, were, were some of the biggest. And yeah, some big names like Leonardo, Airbus, Glock. Um, Luisa, I don't know if there's any more. Um, Tails. Um, yeah, I mean, it, the, the list is part what you would think are the usual suspects um, of border control. And there's also overlap. I mean, all of the incredibly uh, comprehensive studies that have been done to date on, for example, procurement, um, you see a lot of uh, coincidence in terms of the names of the you know companies that are getting more contracts and the names that are um, present in these meetings. Um, and but yeah, we've seen. I mean, you said uh, non-EU companies. We've seen um, at least three Israeli companies, um, a couple of US ones as well. So there's there's quite a variety of them, but I think that the main thing that unites them all is most of them are defense and surveillance companies. You just used the word procurement. Um, basically, you describe in your report how um, it's not only about um, talking freely with uh, um, technology producers what kind of stuff they are working on and uh, what they would have to offer. It is, it, you get really the impression that um, um, they, they go hand in hand with Frontex and basically it's being discussed how they could uh, maybe develop stuff uh, on the demand of Frontex and then later on uh, there could be some help uh, from Frontex to help with the procurement. Uh, it, it, it sounds really like a sort of... Um, 
marketplace uh, for technology. Mm-hmm. Is that too exaggerated to, to describe it? How, how? I mean, I think it, it sounds accurate and it's also linked to what Luisa was saying at the beginning about the fact that, you know, Frontex got this new mandate, but everything isn't clear from that mandate. And yes, they got, you know, the possibility to buy their own equipments, etc. But especially in the in the topics that are controversial fundamentally, and there's a big debate in society, but also in EU politics about, for instance, biometrics and facial recognition and handguns, things are not clarified yet. And especially in the handgun topic, we saw, sorry for the bad pun, but Frontex jumping the gun and going and asking uh, weapon manufacturers for their feedback on the procurement calls. And for instance, we got some feedback such as, you know, um, having an open call or things like that for people to to. And if you're allowed to give feedback on the procurement call that you're going to then apply to you have an advantage, right? And so it's definitely something. And and these things are not, it's also important to say because in EU policy, there's a lot of, you know, everybody says it's red tape or it's all those technicalities. These are accountability mechanisms. Frontex is an agency of the EU and the only way it's held accountable is in front of the European Parliament, who's the only elected uh, EU institution, and via the mandate that was decided by the EU institutions. And Frontex can't just take it and go rogue and do whatever they want. They have they need to be accountable to EU citizens via the EU institutions. And so these are important to make sure that everything is clarified and that they have a clear legal basis and a clear mandate to go do whatever it is that they're going to do. And and that's not they're not there yet. And but they're still already um, kind of moving forward before having the green light, the full green light from the EU institutions. So when it comes to surveillance technology, uh, something, Miriam, that you already addressed, um, uh, well, a lot of politicians might say, well, this is just technology and and, uh, to be able to defend our borders against uh, intruders, we just need that technology. Um, And um, yeah, maybe citizens in Europe would agree with that or certain citizens in Europe would agree with that. Yeah, I, I mean, the problem is that it will apply to them too. So that's the issue with the whole concept of fortress Europe is that you're building walls around the EU, but anybody going in and out of the EU will be submitted to those technologies. And for instance, one of the big issues with biometrics is that the issue of consent is the issue that you, you know, you would walk into an airport and your face would be scanned without your consent and then kept in a database to make, and then every time you would cross a border or, you know, go in any building that has a facial recognition system, then they would know where you've been, what you did, et cetera, et cetera. And for instance, we saw one presentation from a company uh, suggesting that post-Brexit, because of course there's the anticipation that there were going to be massive lines at the border um, between the UK and the EU, while this company was suggesting to put in some biometrics automatic uh, gates. So you would go in without a person to check your passport, but they would scan your passport, they would scan your face, they would potentially take your fingerprints, etc. And then they have that in their database forever. And they keep this data forever. And there is, I mean, first of all, there are big concerns on uh, facial recognitions and biometrics, because for instance, there's been proven that uh, the system is not accurate for people of color. It most, you know, it's more difficult to 
or well no it's not more difficult the algorithm was created by white people who had no idea that you know had not people of color in mind and so the the algorithm makes mistakes and confuses you know two black people etc etc so first of all it, yeah the accuracy is to put in question Um, and then the fact that the consent and the fact that it will apply to EU citizens and the fact that it's so secretive and happening, you know, in Warsaw behind closed doors, people don't know that. And I don't I'm not sure that government would be very happy if their citizens know that we're going to be, you know, scanning everybody's faces and keeping it in the database like in a science fiction movie. Right. Thanks. So basically what you're saying is that that if Frontex were to be uh, using this technology Uh, they are sort of preempting uh, political decisions and debates that still are ongoing in, within the European Union on, on at, this kind of technology. Yeah, so at the moment there are discussions um, on biometrics and facial recognition specifically. So the Commission wanted to put a moratorium to so kind of pause things and have a think. Uh, about facial recognition, they then changed their mind, but now the Parliament is bringing it forward again. So saying, you know, we should think about this before we do it but at the me in the meantime frontex is meeting companies and looking at the new you know shiny technology of uh, how you can scan people's faces easily so again it's just an illustration of of what the problem is really right um now i don't have to tell you that frontex has been under fire the past weeks months years maybe even by politicians uh, civil society journalists um being accused of, um, well, bad management, but especially involved in pushbacks, uh, which is completely against uh, European law and international law even. But um, concerning your findings, one could also say, and you already stated um, that basically these announcements for meetings, calls with industry were published on the website. Um, the, the member states I read in your report were present in many meetings. So um, a lot of policymakers somehow were or should have been aware of what's happening um, in Frontex uh, when it comes to uh, very cozy contacts with, with defense and, and surveillance technology companies. So is the problem not more with the politicians or the policymakers than with Frontex in, in that regard? How would you re react to that? Luisa. Listen, like we've we've faced this question um, a couple of times. And I mean, my answer is usually why do we need to choose one to blame when actually, you know, it's not like we're running out of fingers to point. Um, and actually, every single actor involved has a part of blame. Um, the fact that member states and even the commission and some EU agencies were sometimes in these meetings, to me, raises a trillion red flags because they knew this was going on and they profited of the system to get connected to companies, to like get more intelligence on what technologies are being developed, etc. instead of thinking it through a democratic lens and just putting an end to these meetings or asking for more disclosure or asking more questions. So that to me is an incredible failure and something that we need to address. On the European Parliament side of things, I mean, it is true and it's important to say that the European Parliament did try to ask questions around what was happening with the lobbying and what they got in response was a lie. So at least they tried 
to ask a question. The problem here is that Frontex disregards the parliament in this sense and they just lied to them. So, of course, I mean, accountability is quite difficult to enact when what you have is misleading information. At the same time, I mean, the parliament was part of the negotiations that gave Frontex such a huge mandate, such huge budget and such huge powers. And they approved two very important legislative reforms. And they knew that, you know, accountability and oversight shortcomings were part of these reforms because people were telling them and yet they approved them anyway. So this is sort of a monster that they made themselves. It is now backfiring and they will now need to think how to correct this. But it's, it's you know, they're here to blame. But also I'll just add that Frontex here is not a passive actor. You know, they're not just implementing their mandate. And the perfect example here is the fact that they lied to the parliament about their unregistered meetings. You know, it's they could say, well, we're just, you know, implementing our mandate and complying with our regulation, which is something that first we can actually debate um, whether you're stretching your mandate or not. But even if you were doing everything in full compliance with the law, when you get asked about it and you lie, then you stop being an innocent actor and then you're actually deceiving a democratic organ. But as I read in one of the comments in the in the newspapers the weekend that you published this report, uh, Frontex is still uh, um, stating that actually they are not really um, dealing with lobbyism because they are not an institution that is making regulations or laws. So therefore, there is no interest for lobbying. It's a, it's a and I I I can see it's it's a bit of a very creative defense, but uh, I mean. Apparently, there is something wrong about the qualification of what lobbying means to start with. I mean, like, and this is the thing, because they we've been in contact with Frontex about this research and about our findings about their lie to the parliament and asking them, could you please explain? And I mean, first they came with this, what to me seems surreal response um, that Frontex does not attract the interest of lobbyists. Um, And they said that they didn't hold lobby meetings. And then what we did was actually give them the definition of what lobbying is according to European rules, which actually say that lobbying applies not only to policymaking, but actually the implementation of EU policy, which is precisely what Frontex does. And for some reason, Frontex is... um, in in a strange state of affairs where they just won't recognize themselves in this definition that otherwise, you know, applies to the rest of the EU. Um, so, I mean, our question at some point is like needs to be then what is Frontex according, uh, sorry, what is lobbying according to Frontex? Because, you know, if EU rules don't apply to you, then which rules do apply to you? What do you consider lobbying? And you know, how do you handle it, which is the question that the parliament asked you in 2018 and you kind of didn't respond to. So, I mean, for us, you know, like the meetings that we've seen, clearly, I mean, the big, big majority of them do fall very clearly under the definition of lobbying provided by EU rules. If Frontex does not agree with this, the very least they could do is then tell us why and what do they consider lobbying instead of giving this sort of sassy responses to the press. 
Now you just and see if the European Court of Justice agrees with that, and if the European institutions yes. agree with Frontex having, you know. EU rules not applying to them and applying completely different definition to lobbying. That'll be interesting to see. Yeah, and and you just uh, Louisa just referred to uh, po uh, the political responsibilities. By miracle, a week or so before the publication of your report, the European Parliament, uh, at least some members of Parliament in the Libe Committee, announced that they were had created a w sort of working group sort of permanent control working group on Frontex. So that is, uh, I guess you have provided at least them some, some nice homework to start with. Well, they already had some stuff on their plate. But, they, have, um, they have quite a lot on their plate. Yes. Well, I mean, that's what they paid for to do, to do that. Yeah, and it's work. about time that they created yeah. this group. It's been years of in but, the making. But Miriam, um, you have already in this talk uh, referred a few times to the fact that there has been an absolute lack of... Um, uh, involvement of experts concerning civil rights, human rights, and all of that uh, inside of Frontex. And one of the uh, uh, remarkable things I also read in, in the uh, newspaper reports was that uh, within Frontex, um, when there were people suggesting uh, to maybe consult those experts, that they were basically pushed aside and that their requests were basically um, being being ignored by by uh, the director Legheri and and his uh, right hand, um, can you explain a bit more? Like how I mean, is there not at all any consultation of um, civil civil rights organizations within Frontex? How how is that? So there is, um, and Luis is the full expert in Frontex. So please correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, but there is a consultative forum made up of NGOs that is basically at Frontex's disposal to consult if they have any questions, requests, etc. They, to my understanding, don't have any initiative saying we want to be in this meeting or we want to see this document. They don't have access to any information within Frontex. So it's only a one-way street. Um, and we've talked to uh, one now former member of this forum who told us that they had no... Uh, knowledge that these meetings were going on, that they had not been asked about the specific topics that are discussed in these meetings. Um, and so it seems like there was no consultation of this consultative forum whatsoever. Uh, if you look at the participants list of who from Frontex was present to most of the meetings, it's usually people from research and innovation, from the procurement unit, so the people who are going to write the procurement calls afterwards were listening to the feedback, but there was no one, uh, you know, from, there was no one from the Fundamental Rights Agency, for instance, there was no one who's, you know, remotely linked to fundamental or human rights um, whatsoever. And it's also very dangerous in my view, because you, what you see in those presentations is also, um, to me, one of the illustration of why capitalism is so dangerous is that you have those companies who build biometric surveillance tools, weapons, etc., who need money from Frontex. And in order to do that, they amp up and they present migrants as a threat. And so you see some presentation who clearly say the problem, two dots, migrants, or basically saying linking the influx of migrants to terrorist attacks, which is not true and not a fact. But so you have those horrendous things on those presentation and no one in the room is there to contradict them. And no one in the room is here to say, well, actually, I am a migrant association. I am, 
you know, a researcher on even terrorism, and I can tell you this is not true. Uh, and of course, we don't have the detailed minutes of those meetings. We don't know if someone speak out, but it doesn't seem like anyone in the room had as a role of, you know, safeguard and gatekeeper of ethics and human decency. Um, so, and then, of course, the fear-mongering leads to, well, Frontex's budget completely blowing up in the past few years and more contracts and more money for these companies. And that's just the vicious circle that you're in. And to me, that's, yeah, it's not about who's in the room and you need to have one representative of each like field. It's about making sure that the discussions are accurate, factly, and, and just decent. In the context of the, the discharge procedure, which is happening as we speak, uh, the reports are being made. Uh, I, I spoke to some members of parliament who are uh, working on this and the Frontex discharge. Uh, they will try to, to postpone that um, in the light of all this. Uh, they had uh, mails from uh, whistleblowers basically uh, addressing to um, to this um, this kind of the, the internal culture at Frontex. Um, and, and basically, it all seems to, 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 to fit very nicely together, nicely between brackets, uh, no pun intended. But um, th th there seems to be a sort of um, out of, out of uh, law um, context where, where, where the, the director seems to feel that he can get away with anything. And apparently, he seems to be protected by some member states who are in the board um Luisa, would that be something in a, a, like a sort of like a broad picture that you recognize from what you know? Um I would say so, yeah. I mean to be perfectly honest, I think Legeri has the impression that he can get away with all of this because to date he has gotten away with all of it. Like Frontex has not been you know held accountable to date, like like to date, we do not have a measure um, correcting any of these actions that we've seen, which to me, to be honest, every single day that goes on, it's just unbelievable. Because if you look at everything that we now know about this agency's actions um, and, and the danger it creates for people who are just looking for a place of safety, to me, it's wild that no one has actually like even given them a slap in the wrist. So, you know, I'd think that Ligieri has, you know, he, he is this sort of like, um, I mean, he's described almost as an authoritarian kind of leader within Frontex um, and just like completely disregards um, oversight. But he's been allowed to do so. And Frontex more widely, so beyond Ligieri, has been allowed to do so. So that's amazing. I, I was told also that that basically he very unusually was not uh, the official candidate of any member state. He basically popped up on the right moment and the right space to take over from the for former Finnish uh, director. But anyhow, what you just said is basically um, comes back to a, f a question I asked previously. I mean, this seems to be a foremost to me, at least. A huge political problem. Like, I mean, oh, what are massive. you? What yeah. are you? What are you expecting? Well, maybe both of you can answer this question. What are you now expecting, basically, as citizens, as researchers from uh, policymakers, the political world, to do about what has been created? This monster that you just defined. Louis said you want to talk to Frontex, and I can do a bit of a broader picture thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I'd say when it comes to Frontex. 
So like there's there's this idea that's already in the air about the director and whether you know he needs to be fired or not which to be perfectly honest um like I do think he needs to be fired you know Legere needs to go like that man should not stay in a position of power a single day more because he has huge responsibility in what has happened huge responsibility and I mean if we're serious about the concept of responsibility and accountability then like it's it's inevitable, you know. Like you can't have a person that has taken so many wrong decisions and has lied to the European Parliament repeatedly, and still have him there. Um, that said, I mean the, what we've seen with Frontex throughout the years, actually not even this year, but throughout the years, spell out basically a systemic problem. And you know, to have one person less in Frontex is not going to change what Frontex is. It's just you remove a person, but then you put in a person within the same organization, within the same culture. And, you know, this person will just end up in a very similar place if you do not address the actual structures. So my expectation is that, you know, like at the very least MEPs, but also the commission and member states will address this from a systematic point of view. I think um, there are many ways to do it. The financial aspect of it is kind of the most obvious, maybe. First, because we're now, in the, as you mentioned, in the discharge procedure, but also because it is such an important part of what Frontex is. It's a billionaire agency, and all of these resources deliver what we've seen in many headlines of many newspapers. So I think that that budget needs to cease to exist. And we are at a moment, you know, where um, all of our budgets um, EU-wide in the world are struggling in the middle of a health crisis, um, which, you know, came on top of an already existing climate crisis. We're still recovering from the previous economic crisis. Like, we can use that money. And Frontex is not the actor who's best suited for this um, investment. So taking this money from them and defunding their operations, which, as we've seen, lead repeatedly to human rights violations is a wonderful place to start. And let's redirect this and actually be constructive in our policies instead of, you know, destructing um, people's lives, which is what happens when you're pushed back. Miriam, I mean, again, uh, the, the mandate, you, you, both of you already ref referred to it, uh, has been given to Frontex by the same European institutions. And if I may be the devil's advocate here, um, some people will say, yes, uh, listen, uh, this mandate is inspired by a sort of, you may like it or not, uh, European, um, let's say, center to right to extreme right tendency to say uh, we need to avoid as much as possible uh, people, migrants, to come in uh, into Europe. And, and so basically that is the will of the majority of European politicians and therefore citizens, and so Frontex is doing the people's will. I'm now almost talk, sounding like a populist, I know, but, um, <laughs> but I mean, in, there is also, uh, that is really the view that a lot of people will, would share. How would you, I mean... Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's, it's very true to not forget that Frontex is the crystallization of the EU's migration policy. And... 
in my opinion, one of the reasons why it managed to get away with everything for so long, like Lusa was saying, is that it's very convenient for member states to have Frontex to do their dirty work. And it's, you know, a, like a lot of things in the EU, it's a scapegoat for member states to say, well, it's not us, it's the EU, when in fact, up until now, member states had a huge control over Frontex, and it's only now that, you know, there's a bit of independence. Um, I think that that's why I think we it's great that we abolish and destroy and defund Frontex, you know, Yes, I'm 100% for it, but I think we need to go forward and we need to, you know, go further and look into the migration policy because that's also um, the core of the problem and probably why it's been such a sensitive topic and lack of accountability so far. Um, I mean, yeah, I agree that there's been a rise in in right-wing populist fascist governments in Europe. I think the reason why is very much linked to what Luisa was saying about, you know, you will live in a society where there's more and more inequalities every day. And we basically go from crisis to crisis, barely surviving. And it's and some parties are pointing fingers and fear mongering and saying it's the thought of migrants and people of color. And, you know, anybody who doesn't look like you and isn't part of your um, circle, they're coming for you and they're coming for your house, which when you live in a precarious situation and you don't have your needs met and you live in constant fear of losing everything, that that resonates. And then you can very easily listen to that message and buy into that when in fact, um, and I'm going to be bashing my anti-capitalist discourse here, but this is the root cause of everything. And it's, we live in, society, in a capitalist society that needs to make money as much as possible. And you make money by exploiting people and the planet. And that's what we need to be tackling ultimately is to just smash that system and create a new one that allows for... And, and the reason why people migrate in the first place is also that. Yes. Is, you know, colonialism and, Inequality. yeah, and, and you know, Shell going to destroy Nigeria for oil and then, well, people don't have a mean to live anymore and they have to move and they have to need to look for a safer place. So that's the root cause of everything. And we need to make sure that we keep connecting those dots and explaining to people, you know, where it comes from and why that is and and also believing that we can do better which some days is is difficult but i think yeah that is indeed a very hopeful thought thanks for that explanation um but in the meantime there is this uh, sorry to get back to the grim reality there is this <laughs> oh don't worry i live there <laughs> there is this uh grim reality that frontex um will be recruiting 10,000 uh coast guards um i mean can you, Luisa, can you explain a bit on what is planned there? How are, in which phase of that process are we? And will we soon have indeed a, a European Union with 10,000 uniformed armed coast guards uh, um, having access to all kinds of James Bond uh, surveillance technology? How do you see that? Listen, against my best wishes, your description is quite accurate. Um, this is indeed where we're headed. So, um, and to put it in context, this is part of the new Frontex that was born in 2019. Um, and basically, because until now, as I think I mentioned in the start, um, Frontex was very dependent on the EU countries, right? So their border guards um, came from EU countries, stayed in their missions for, you know, a couple of weeks, a couple of months, and then went back to the national states. And it happened the same with the boats they use, with the planes, with every material. 
And in 2019, for the first time, they've um, gotten their the power to basically first buy their own equipment so they can now get their own boats, their own planes, their own drones, um, and at the same time have their own kind of army of border guards. That is 100% Frontex. And they're called, in a very dystopian way, um, the Standing Corps. Um, and so the recruitment of this Standing Corps has already begun. Um, it's underway. They've started uh, recruiting in 2020. They had um, a couple of hiccups in the process, as it has been reported. Um, but it's in the way. And I mean, they've been very diligent, of course, um, about this, you know, in contrast of, for example, how diligent they were not when it came to recruiting fundamental rights monitors, um, which took much more time than this. But when it comes to the Frontex officials and these 10,000 uh, border guards, it's happening and we should be there in a matter, I'm guessing, of one, two years. Well, maybe uh, I suggest that you send your report to Margaret Atwood, the great writer, uh, for some uh, dystopian inspiration for our next uh, series of books. Um, thank you very much. We've come to the end of this podcast. A special thanks goes out to my guests, Miriam and Louisa, for sharing their insights and knowledge with us and for taking action. Also a big thank you to Mark Baroner and Jan Kalawart for technical assistance. If you like this podcast and if you value the work of CEO, then please support us to stay independent. We are a small organization that works fully independently of funding from EU institutions and corporations. So every single donation, small or big, helps us fight the hold of big business over European policymaking. Stay tuned. Stay safe. <laughs>